In our last episode, we um, spoke about the two extremes that um, Dombrowski begins with. Um, these two extremes being one, this drop of experience view that is um, held by David Hume, Burton Russell, and the Buddhists, um, and the other extreme, which was um, the classical theistic view. In in the Buddhist view there was no causal relationship between the past and our current moment and the future and our current existence, this current drop of ex experience. So it becomes really hard to like glue together and piece together this person because there's no, um, like I said, causal relatedness. So you've got that notion of personhood sort of lacking there. And with the classical theistic view, um, you've got a determined future, right? A, an actualized future where events are bound to happen the way they are. And so there is causal relationship between what has happened in the past and right now. But strangely, there's also causal relationship between what has happened in the future or what will happen in the future rather to right now. Um, and in this universe, what a person is or who is a person, like which being depends solely on God. And God, when determines um, and any being who is a person would be eternally known as, as such by a divine being. And this divine being would be God. So we left off talking about this and just exploring these um, claims. And um, today we're just going to continue and and talk about the, the process theistic view, which I think the both of us found extremely exciting and something that we both kind of agreed with. Yes. So in unlike whatever you've just said um that is in in the humean view and in classical theism process theism would hold that there is causality in one way but not the other and that this causal chain of events is unique to each person and i think unwittingly a lot of us if not most of us subscribe to this process theistic view because we do, I think, intuitively believe that the past has had some kind of causal influence on us, but not the future. So, um, you know, when, when looked at like that, it does seem also that, that non-human animals can be people because they also share some kind of causal relationship with the past and uh, and not with the future combined with their sentience yeah exactly and and the way um um dombrowski defines it defines it is that this temporal relation is asymmetrical in that there's a there's a mental life so we we view personhood in in terms of this mental life that is temporally conditioned 
Um, and so I'm just going to read this bit out. So there's a tendency to view personhood in terms of a mental life that is temporally conditioned in the sense that there is a continuity among the occasions or events in a series. That is, a person who is one who experiences, um, whose experiences are temporally ordered in the same psychological line of inheritance. Um, and this, to me, makes like a lot of sense, right? Because we view um, these sort of sequences, these events creating who we are, this this mental life um, and, and us having this internal relation to this, to the existing events that have, well, not existing anymore, but events that have already happened in the past or, or this, and there being this sort of sequence of events that we follow that, that create um, who we are, that, that make us who we are. And um, there's this line that, um, uh, among the members of a series and exhibit a temporal sequence that sustains a character. There are no conceptual barriers to seeing many human non-animals as persons. So, so when any, any being that exhibits this temporal non, sequence of non-human animals, what did I say? Human non-animals. Did I say human non-animals? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh no. That's, oh, what would a, human... That's a whole new phase. <laughs> A human, that, that would be like a, what, yeah, a, a would, I'm just thinking what that would be like. That would be like a cyborg or something like that. Or like a human. I mean, if we attribute humanity to an artificial intelligence, would it be an animal? Maybe not, mm. but would it be a human? Probably. A human non animal. Oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> what have you done? Well, I've, I've done a whoopsie, but perhaps a very intellectual whoopsie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry, but uh, there would be no conceptual barriers to seeing non-human animals. Um, and I find that really interesting. And um, at first, this I had this question, right, which is that um, when, when Dombrowski writes that, uh, quote-unquote, that we exhibit a temporal sequence that sustains a character, I had this question of what does it mean for something to sustain a character? Um, because in, in human terms, it, it, it's easy to see what it means to sustain a character. Uh, like we, we, we think of character in, in similar terms as we think of personality. Um, but in, in the very next paragraph, Dombrowski writes that by when we, the language regarding sustaining a character is meant to, to sidestep questions regarding consciousness and self-consciousness, questions that deal with the highest levels of mentality. So there's definitely a difference between, and, and there's a shift in how we're conceptualizing personhood. And, and usually, and we've we, we've spoken about this too in, in our earlier episode on personhood, which is that we usually think of and associate personhood with consciousness or self-consciousness. But by using um, the words, or by using the language of sustaining a character, we're not referring to those and we're not referring to this higher order um, so to speak, of like mental being. Um, but what do you think of this use of the word sustaining a character or this language? It's, I think it's ingenious because he, I mean, after saying sustaining a character, he explicitly mentions that obviously it's not concerned with, well, who is higher order conscious or who isn't. It's rather about who is a moral agent and who is a moral patient. So to differentiate between those, we'd have to think about who has the agency to exercise um, action 
as in who has the agency to uh, or a moral agent would be someone who can act morally or immorally and who can consequently be held accountable for their actions but um he distinguishes this from somebody who is a moral or some person who is a moral patient who is merely somebody who can be treated cruelly who can be harmed or have their rights violated and by rights obviously it's a very broad thing i would i would assume that it means the ability to be harmed or feel pain or something like that so a moral patient according to him is what is what is primarily required to sustain a character and i think this the sustenance of character lends or ties quite well into the the idea of process theism because that's where dombrowski is coming from also because you cannot sustain as in look at the word itself right sustenance it's temporal in its very semantics so to sustain a character you need that temporal connection with something and what is that something the events that caused uh, your existence right now so you have a causal relationship to the past but not necessarily to the future yeah yeah and and i like how he explicitly mentions that when we're talking about personhood what matters is being a moral patient and not necessarily a moral agent because i'm just going to read out what he says which is that personhood concerns the latter effort which is uh, moral being a moral patient when considering which lines of inheritance from the past and anticipations of the future make an internal difference to the being in question and that's a really exciting way an interesting way of thinking about existence itself and and what it means for um there being this internal consistency and continuity uh from from the past to the future and it's not and and being a person doesn't necessarily then entail that you need to have active control and determination and and this knowledge of the self to be able to control or desire a better future or 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 have this consistency between the past your lived experiences and the future because that's how we usually conceive of of our, our existence and of personhood so to speak um but then all that matters then is being a moral patient and that too is enough in and and makes um you know an internal difference um in in being so to speak yes yes absolutely i agree because then we we begin to raise questions of uh i mean when we begin to raise questions of whether moral patients alone or whether being a moral patient is a sufficient condition for being a person then we also begin to raise questions of uh ethics and obviously moral patient has some ethical connotations to it so uh, of ethics and and how we treat animals and and pets uh, you know meat eating all of that stuff and uh, although i do grant that that those conversations specifically are outside the scope of this particular conversation it's it's an interesting thing to think about because then later he also says that you know <laughs> if we if we're now considering moral patients um as in non-human animals to be persons then the conversation obviously comes back to us humans right it comes back to the lives of mentally challenged human beings or the lives of people who are not as able bodied as other people so 
the lives of mentally challenged human beings at least should convince us that one can have a life that is personally ordered without rising to the topmost heights of mentality so as soon as we define something to be a person in terms of its moral patience patiency um whatever the word is where we're making the playing field a little more even like it's not it's not binary anymore it's a lot more um you know it's a spectrum now a spectrum of people who are people nonetheless yeah and there's this other poetic line that i i really like and i had questions about too but which eventually i thought about but anyway the line is a person is one who can feel intensely its inheritance from the past without being shackled by it there is a degree of spontaneity in an attempt to live well and perhaps even to live better in the future and i thought about this and i and i wondered what does it mean to live better or or even and like what does a spontaneous attempt to live well mean like because again it's so it's so crazy because all of these questions come from a position of being a human and being like like my experiences because i can't think of wanting to live well other than in terms of well, that's not necessarily true but in terms of like material being when you think about wanting to live well but that's not necessarily the case right like this example of people who are neurodivergent for example that he gives um um in, in continuity of the or, or in this paragraph itself it makes sense we we even if we don't have uh complete mental capabilities of say self consciousness or or the highest mental capacity whatever it may be we still have an attempt to live well even if that means i mean whatever that means and that makes us a person uh, i mean it definitely does make us a person and uh he gives this example of say jellyfish or worms they don't necessarily have these characteristics of uh, uh these life threads as uh, dombrowski calls it but then it it also makes you wonder right what makes it so that these or, or how do we identify these life threads how do we identify what would be a spontaneous um um attempt to live well um and i really like the example that he gives of tuffy and daisy um in in the following paragraphs that and, and it's a lot i mean naturally intuitively it's a lot easier to imagine and to think of personhood in the example of tuffy and daisy but and and once we discuss that i want to come back to what it what makes it so that worms and jellyfish aren't identifiable or don't have the identifiable life threads of you know the spontaneous attempt to live well i think it's got to do with um the ability to act uh on on, on anything other than sheer instinct or impulse perhaps because uh, animals that have a little higher order consciousness than say something like a a bacterium or a or a worm or something they'd have motivations that aren't necessarily guided by survival and that's a very i know that that's a hard position to hold and you could argue that everything we do is motivated by the need for survival which is physical survival but i don't know i i just have a feeling that that's not always the case and coming back to also just to clarify tuffy and daisy that 
they want to refer to a to animal stuffy i think is the dog and um the the daisy the cow right yeah 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 and uh, i mean those we'll we'll get to in in a second but coming back to the the argument about neurodivergence or, ab- or cases of uh, abnormality uh it's one of the most common arguments also when speaking of like abortion or euthanasia or something like that because a question that i've always noticed rises in in cases of 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 those as in in abortion euthanasia is whether people in or neonatal people or abortion say people neonatal beings or or people in i guess vegetative states are strictly persons yeah that's a yeah and i was i was thinking about that too in in, in that uh, when we when we're saying um non-human animals would be considered neonates non-human animals or would we categorize them under the category of humans and that's something i feel like we should we we could return yeah, to as well yeah both pre and neo i just i don't mean just neo like prenatal and yeah yeah. yeah of course yeah and i think that i i mean i just like thought of this of in in the case of like jellyfish and worms for example uh the defining person the defining trait of personhood would be this continuation of this internal temporal continuation of past experiences to to right now this this continuation of character so to speak and which it's definitely easier to see in worms because like you said it's a lot more instinct based so to speak experiences of the past wouldn't influence um this this sort of um uh, wouldn't influence the experience of today of of that moment and again I, i'm guessing it wouldn't because that is definitely a higher order mental process i think because it does involve memory to a large extent but i'm not so sure about this with jellyfish i mean they don't have brains i, I feel like that was just a like it sounded like a diss uh and this just this <laughs> yeah cool well it's cool get insult <laughs> you don't have a brain <laughs> yeah what it sounded you? very unfortunate <laughs> what do you a jellyfish <laughs> yeah it's it's they they don't have brains but they have they they exist based on the sensory like experience itself and i wonder if that alone is enough to and maybe it isn't maybe it isn't enough in terms of qualifying their existences uh and and their present experiences as being causally linked to and and influenced by events in the past creating a character so to speak and so maybe in that case jellyfish and worms wouldn't be persons in in a way that daisy and um fluffy would be the the cow and the dog you know that's funny because if we if we don't consider pure sensations as enough to be called um i guess higher order consciousness or being called a person like say jellyfish then what about or rather how much of a brain do you need if we say that you know brains are the prerequisite for personhood then is it a full brain or is it a half brain or what kind of brain because there have been cases in the past of young people having hemispherectomies and having one half of their brain removed and the other half of the brain just takes on the functions of of 
if, if your left hemisphere was removed then the right hemisphere just takes on all the functions of the left because you're still in your formative years and that's the the, the brain is plastic enough for that to happen so is it based on functionality or based purely on say the volume the the physical volume of the brain like that's also a tricky question to to answer if we're talking about people and finally if we're saying that pure sensation is enough then or is not enough then are we then would that mean that jellyfish are closer in their in the personhood scale to plants than they are to humans yeah that's a really that's a really exciting question unless um unless i mean you know it's still an exciting question and i guess a way to like if we were to try and accommodate uh, sensory um uh experiences in in this notion of personhood it would be that um trace amounts of so so with um experiences it, it seems like there is um memory involved right and, and um um dombrowski talks about this in in the context of the dog too uh, in in the context of uh tuffy but what if but is uh, uh, is memory required for this continuation of character this this temporal internal relationship to experiences in the past would would memory then be required or would like traces of um sensory experiences and experiences in the past be enough to sort of be classified as a continuation of character uh, because even in human being sometimes we don't we might not necessarily have a memory of an event or a or, or something of the sort but even experiencing something uh, a physical experience it reminds us of something or it it feels like this continuation of character because it's a sensory experience we've experienced before um something that we've and, and probably deja vu is an example of this because it has no uh it just something feels familiar would that count as a continuation of existence in in say beings that are that exist purely on uh, on sensory organs and not a brain or memory um so to speak hmm yeah i don't know i think i don't know i intuitively feel like memory is required but then i have to ask myself what about people with amnesia or what about people see i'm even using the word i'm saying people so it's like i we can't get rid of it what about people with amnesia or what about people with i guess dementia or, or something like that where they don't remember what what events happened in the past or whether things are causally connected i mean i, I we would still call them people like it's not like they aren't it's not like you're not a person but oh but it's just so complicated because then if if that's enough then we also need like dombrowski saying connected to non-human animals and say well they could be people also um it's it's regrettable that i don't have a more extended knowledge of the physiology of animals because if i did then i'm sure it would be a little clearer of what they're capable of and what they aren't but yeah it's it's it's, it's good to think about yeah yeah and and this this notion of like being a model patient being linked to um you know like inheritance from the past and anticipations of the future um maybe and i wonder if they are linked to that maybe being a model patient is um a required 
um, sort of uh, is a requirement of being a person or if 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 not a requirement if it's a sufficient condition for being a person so so those answers are pretty interesting too and i i guess maybe when we're now that we talk about tuffy and daisy um and you could explain the their story or the example that uh, dombrowski gives of the both of them maybe these questions will become a lot more uh, or maybe we'd have a different lens to think about them from speaking again of memory when we think of of memory we also have to talk of what kind of memory because humans have a pretty good long term memory but our working memory is quite short and there's a popular theory that i've been reading about lately and that's it's called the cognitive trade off hypothesis have you heard of it no i don't think so okay so the cognitive trade off hypothesis also visas made a great video about it actually you should check it out um it's 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 a hypothesis that proposes that humans evolutionarily lost their ability to remember things in the short term because of the development of language like it was a trade off a cognitive trade off that's where it comes from so they sacrificed their short term memory for the development of language now if you compare a human's short term memory with like a chimpanzee's short term memory it's drastically different like they can remember so much more than we can in the short term so and obviously there i'm i'm sure chimpanzees being so closely related to us genetically also share a lot of the higher order cognitive traits that that we have so and and yet we're very um hesitant to call them persons we don't even call chimpanzees and bonobos persons let alone <laughs> um other non related animals like dogs cats i don't know buffaloes whatever yeah it's really oh yeah i think i i think i um remember this there was this um famous clip of um chimpanzees doing the the memory game of numbers on the screen yeah yeah exactly that yeah that's the one yeah yeah it's it's quite quite fantastic and with and, and this becomes quite of quite important especially in the case of tuffy which is this example of this dog which is that so i'm just going to read out the example because it's quite it's it's just fun um actually it's not fun i mean because the example is of someone kicking a dog that's not what i mean by fun it's just it's a it's a great example um so consider the example of a dog who is kicked by a particular human being on a tuesday and who is later confronted by the same human being on wednesday um the dog starts to growl even before being kicked again by the human being the fact that it makes sense in everyday english to say that the dog has reason to growl speaks in favor of a certain mental life in the dog who clearly remembers what happened on tuesday and who is thus literally affected by the kicking event internally affected by um the kicking event and the other example is of a compliant a normally compliant cow who in transport to the abattoir becomes restless and tries to turn around in her ca- in her chute and run in the other direction granted the future is not here yet and hence cannot be known in any detail but it nonetheless makes sense for the cow to be skittish or if she actually smells the blood of her corn specifics to be filled with terror regarding what might happen in the future although she is typically mellow it is obvious obviously not these unreasonable for her to resist going into the slaughterhouse in light of the fact that she has already internalized 
the importance of certain screams and smells and sights that have come from other cows in the past. So this shows that there's there are obviously there's not only is there experiences of, of the past influencing strongly how we or how animals respond to um, experiences right now, but also there's an anticipation of the future too, especially seen with like Daisy. Like you, you're running because you don't you you don't know for sure where you're being transported to, right? But there's obviously an anticipation of fear because you've you've experienced the Daisy has experienced the screams and um, the blood and all of that before. So it it Daisy recognizes this to some extent and anticipates the slaughterhouse. So there is this um, temporal internal in, internal temporal relation to the past and the future. Um, which definitely qualifies them to be persons in that sense of the word. So it's it's easy to see how this metaphysical notion of temp temporal relationships in class uh, in not classical sorry in process theism allow for animals to be non-human animals to be persons. Yes, exactly. So then now that we've you know this just reminds me of or rather this makes me think of uh, death, right? So if we're speaking of temporal connection to the past and, and uh, a causal relationship to the future in that we influence the future and not the other way around, we have to think of what happens when our faculties approach nil, as, as Dombrowski terms it. And the entire line is, persons are fragile in that they come into existence as part of evolutionary history, and they pass out of existence when mental life asymptomatically approaches nil, and or when a character is no longer sustained. So there's, again, that sustenance of character, but in most theological views, and in classical theistic views, there seems to be a desire to erase death, or, yeah, you know, to erase death, um, or maybe I should say to erase permanent death. That might sound like, like I mean, permanent death is different from death, as in uh, permanent death would be death uh, without an afterlife, like most Abrahamic religions believe in an afterlife, uh, and Hinduism and Buddhism and such believe in, in, in the cycle of life and death and rebirth and whatnot. But a neoclassical philosopher, which would be a process theist, um, would equate physical death with the death of a person. And that that link to um, the physical animal, uh, even in the human, the, the animal, as in considering humans as animals, the link to the physical animal is exactly what allows non-human animals to be called persons because of, because of, or rather also because of this consideration of what happens preceding and upon death. Yeah, and I think also that there's this this point about um, sort of. I mean, how do I how do I say this? There's this. Um, hmm. Actually, let me put put it as a question. Do do you do you think that um, this sort of um sense perception and actually let me read this line out first this um so uh dombrowski writes that um the possession of sense perception and the nascent mentality um sense perception involves 
as illustrated by Tuffy and Daisy above, are sufficient to think of non-human animals as persons. So do you think that this sense perception um, and, and the mentality involved in that is enough to perceive future death or anticipate death? Because there's this, it, it's, it's quite a famous idea that dogs and animals, cats too, I think, for example, when they're approaching death, they try to move away from the the family that they've been staying with and choose to die alone. Um, but do you think that that is also anticipation of future or is it like instinctual, um, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's a really weird thing to think about. I mean, it's, it's not weird as much as hard to think about. Like, I, I don't know if it's you know, purely instinctual. I guess at the end of the day, we can call whatever, I mean, any sort of animal behavior instinctual, right, in, in some ways. But uh, but I don't know if dogs or cats or any animals that do that are doing it out of memory, as in if you're saying that the future, they're anticipating the future. I think it's also and they're moving away from the family that they lived with. There's also an aspect of memory involved there, right? Because there's there's clear emotional weight attached to that. So I think it's a little more than instinctual to answer your question, because if if if, if it was just instinctual, then what's the need to, I guess, die alone? Yeah, that's a def- that's definitely something that, that's, that's hard to think about. Um, and I mean, like dying alone is perhaps um, in, in Dombrowski's terms could be called ugly or painful or unnecessary death. I mean, it wouldn't be unnecessary death, but it would be premature or ugly or painful. Um, and it's, yeah, it's definitely hard to think about. And just about like going back to, I just remembered something I wanted to say, like going back to the point about um, like personhood and memory. Um, he, he also mentions how John Locke men, em, like emphasized memory as establishing the identity of persons. So even if we were to take John Locke's definition of personhood as memory being like crucial to the identity of persons, then even in that framework, Tuffy and Daisy and all non-human animals would be, not all non-human animals that have this, this mentality that's associated with sense perception and memory, for example, would definitely be persons. So, and so there's definitely this like, this benchmark for lack of better words that they meet these animals they meet in in terms of being persons and and i also really like this idea of like like what's the significance of like making this point about um personhood right like how does it even matter um when we're talking about this notion of non-human animals being persons and i I really like when Dombrowski writes that this present the, the present article is an attempt to encourage those who are animal welfareists or animal rightists, um, but who are nonetheless reluctant to speak of non-human animal personhood, to move to a conceptual space where non-human animal personhood is not a shock. It should also be noted that the modern history of, well, and then um, 
Dombrowski goes on to talk about um, John Locke in memory. So I really like that this is an attempt and like it's a process theistic attempt to conceptualize like the rights of human uh, non-human animals and and this conversation surrounding non-human animals to involve the notion of personhood because right now it doesn't all we're all we often talk about essentials or the capacity to feel pain but the moment we start arguing for non-human animals as being persons then we've got a greater push and a greater motivation and a greater weight to the conversation of human non-human animal rights right so the 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 thing about like harming non-human animals and giving them rights and stuff also it's also quite related to a, a collective existence and it reminds me of what we spoke about in the fuchs paper also so a process theist wouldn't necessarily subscribe to a purely individual existence or an individualistic existence right because the goal of personhood is to contribute to the growth of this collective uh, divinity i mean i'm i'm using the word divinity because it's process theism but it's still got the term theist in it so a collective divinity so to speak which is temporally shaped um and and molded and such so i think that's particularly important because it's our individualistic notions of existence that give us permission to hurt or harm other persons whether human or non-human right and at this point daniel also dombrowski also goes on to talk about pronouns and and that got me thinking of how we use pronouns in language that's directed at animals so think about how we use she or he when speaking of animals typically kept as pets and it for those not kept as pets it's like we've subconsciously agreed upon um giving or say bestowing i don't think bestowing is the right word it's it's very anthropocentric itself but we've we've given personhood to certain creatures and not to others yeah and i'd really like that part about like like um um like pronouns of how we use it because it it it's a lot easier to see pets as persons but not like an animal like a pig or a cow that's being slaughtered somewhere distant from us but the moment we keep a pet as um a a, a pig for example as a pet then I it automatically becomes urge, easier i have a strong urge to not consider the dog that's barking a person right now <laughs> damn that's hello rude dude it's just it's just trying to express itself maybe an experience in its past <laughs> has moved it to bark right now yeah um but yeah this this idea that and and we've seen this too right these these really moving images of people keeping pigs and cows and other animals that we just consider others to just go and die in like slaughterhouses when they keep them as pets would move to think about them as persons but otherwise we don't so this notion of like pronouns um was just fantastic too i love that it was great yeah um you know then if we're like going ahead past the notion of uh, i guess pronouns and animals being persons the next question that comes to my mind is if personhood is temporally defined <clears throat> then um then is it the case that that a person can never go extinct like does process theism somehow also become uh uh similar to the classical theistic view that 
a person is always a person. So there's this line that says, on the process view, especially Hartshorn's version of it, that is another philosopher, even God, especially God, is a linear sequence of events that is personally ordered. Indeed, the entire series is everlasting. So the person as an entity can never go extinct unless the universe itself goes extinct. Yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know. I, I I haven't really I hadn't really thought about that. Then that maybe that's that's an interesting um, hmm. Maybe that's an interesting thing to think about because if we are just if if God is linear too, right? Uh, is a linear sequence of events that is personally ordered. Indeed, the entire series is everlasting. I don't know what to make of that though because um, hmm. Yeah, I have to think about that because I, I mean, intuitively, I think that maybe we do end, right, at some point, because, and then it maybe uh, asks the question that it, it makes us wonder if God would, because God then might not necessarily die, right? Um, personhood might not necessarily, especially when we're talking about God, might not necessarily entail an end. So in that sense, even if a lin if a sequence is personally ordered, a linear sequence, then it doesn't necessarily have to end. So maybe that does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So no, I think of that as like God as a collective person, as in uh, the collective consciousness of sentient beings who experience, or, or, or let's say the collective consciousness of moral patients is what makes God. And therefore, as long as there are moral patients in the universe, there will always be God. And therefore, as long as there are moral patients, there will always be persons, which which wow. is very which is unfathomable. I mean, it's unfathomable to think that moral patients will not exist as long as the universe exists. Yeah, or, or independent of um, the God, universe. if independent of God. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah they wouldn't exist so yeah that's yeah i guess that that probably fits into this the, the notion of why it's still a process theism right because i mean it is relationship to to god at the end of the day there is there is some yeah, notion exactly, of yeah. god so so that would perfectly fit into that so yeah and you know even though it's still a theistic framework i really like how um like the explanation that um like the author gives like about why classic theism can't, like the classic theistic view can't um, allow animals to be, like non-human animals to be persons is because at the end of the day, the only beings and, <clears throat> sorry, let me read this out. Only those beings made in the image of God are persons and only human beings are made in the image of God. If one asks why only human beings are made in the image of God, Classical theists typically fall back on, on certain high-level function, functional criteria that supposedly only human beings is, exhibit. Rationality, free will, moral agency, or autonomy. And I was, and, and, and this made like a lot of sense, right? Because if you're saying that God was created in um, the... If, if humans were created in the image of God, then nobody else can be... A person technically only human beings would be the ones made in the image of God and if human beings are the only ones made in the image of God they're the ones who are supposed to be a lot more superior and therefore the only people who can be 
per, on, on, only people, sorry, only beings that can be people, persons. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And one thing that I, I, I thought about, and I think um, the author talks about as well, but I'm not sure, which was that uh, the idea that God is also technically a person, but we associate God as God's image is that that which is similar to a human beings like God created us in their image but that's not I mean again I mean it just goes back to whether or not you subscribe to that belief but if God is a person then a person could be anyone right it doesn't necessarily have to be the image of a human being but yeah it, it's just uh, I really like that that he mentions this that Classical theism will always fail in making animals um, persons. Yes, because um, the fact of the matter is that... Wait, I wasn't even holding the mic properly. Yeah, because uh, classical theism is, at the end of the day, very closely tied to organized religion. And when, when you have organized religion... I think there is bound to be a hierarchy of of things and a very strict hierarchy. So you've got humans and then you've got all the other animals. And even if you consider ordinary, uh, you know, the, the popular story of, of like in a in, in couple of religions where there's uh, God telling humans that, there's going to be like a disaster or something. It's always the human that's saving the day at the end of it, like Noah's Ark or whatever, those myth- mythological stories, all of that is, it's very human-centric. So, yeah, it's, it's very unlikely, I think, that classical theism would ever consider non-human animals people. But I, I mean, but with that said, I wonder if, process theism also would uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is even if you were a process theist I don't know if we could ever do justice to the idea of a god by representing by portraying uh, them as as any creature that we know like we we can assume that non-human animals are persons but then in an image of God, it would be a little disingenuous to portray it as um, any animal, right? It would be, it, it would have to be inconceivable. Like the image of God would, would not be possibly imaginable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like there's, there's always um, this, this idea of, um, this difficulty in imagining um, what and, and creating this image of God. And we know that there are lots of religions around the world that refuse to, to um, create an image of, of God or worship an image of God. Um, and I guess that that makes sense. And, uh, and I mean, it's, it's probably an interesting question too, why we need to um, have an image of, of God so to speak, um, at all. And this line that, and, and you mentioned that it's, it, uh, you mentioned human centric and 
this is the line that I was talking about, which is that um, it is somewhat odd that classical theists have had an anthropocentric view of personhood, given the fact that in the Abrahamic religions, God is a person. That is, it would have made more sense for the theists to defend theocentrism rather than anthropocentrism. Um, and that just makes a lot more sense, right? Like to, to defend a, a God-centric view, because then that would be a person-centric view and it wouldn't necessarily be a human-centric view. And that I felt was a, was a great note um, towards the end of the paper. I don't know though, because isn't, well, uh, in Abrahamic religions, a person, a human? Because if it, if it is somewhat odd that classical theists have had an anthropocentric view of personhood, given the fact that in the Abrahamic religions, God is a person, then that just means that God is, well, a person, sure, but a person in the image of humans. So much closer to humans than any other of of God's creations. I'm just asking you, um, with Islam specifically, it is an Abrahamic religion, right? Um, so so I, I think there are three, which is Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, I think. That yeah, are yeah, three that's Abrahamic correct. Religions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and so in, in Islam, there isn't any human idea of, like, God, right? Like, that humans have been created in the image of God. Yeah, in fact, I think it's quite insulting to represent God in the image of humans in Islam. Right. Yeah, exactly. So in that case, it would just be Christianity then that would, or I don't know if Judaism does it, but... Yeah, I don't know about Judaism either. And I mean, mm. that's why I'm a little confused as to why um, Dombrowski uses Abrahamic religions. But yeah, in, in either way, like either way, in whichever religion considers um, there to be, uh, or God, or humans to be, to have been created in the image of God, they certainly would certainly would have made a lot more sense to to follow um you know a, 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 like theocentrism instead of anthropocentrism i i, I don't think i'll ever uh, stop struggling with that word but yeah that's about that's about all i found interesting in that in the last uh, part of the paper yep yeah me too i don't really have much more to say either it's just that um i think it's a very well written paper you know it's it presents a lot of unique arguments and it introduced me to process philosophy which was great and uh, i think it just ends also on such a good note because um there's something hubristic about the classical theistic implication that god and human beings are alike in their hegemony over non-human animals and somehow it just feels like a great segue into so many different ideas at once you know um ethics and meat eating and all the stuff that we spoke about in the beginning of the last episode it's yeah it's just i i think this was a very satis satisfying paper at the least yeah for sure it just it just has this aesthetic appeal and you can follow it easily and um yeah it's it's ideas that like you said i'm i'm glad i'm i've been introduced to it and it just leaves more room to explore like the other questions we had about how God would work in a, um, in a, a process theistic um, framework, and, and other questions too, like about ethics and, and whatnot. So yeah, I'm I'm glad we we picked this paper, and we we also recommend that all of you read it. It's it's quite a small paper. It's like um, nine pages, I think, um, and it's a it's a great read. 
yeah just nine pages so wait is that slender slender is nine pages right no is that eight pages i think slender, slender? is eight pages yeah eight pages. what's slender slender are you serious what's Dude, slender? slender man the, the video game oh yeah okay is it a story like an originally is it a story what I, I, I know that it's a game i know slender man is a game but what are so, the pages yeah so slender the the original video game was uh it, it was one of the sort of pioneering horror video games because you had to go to this abandoned forest kind of place and you had to search for eight pages that oh. uh, which is a very cryptic story and uh, apparently there was like some big secret or something uh, in the game that is like a secret to sandal slender right, man right. or whatever so you had to go search for eight pages so the game was called slender the eight pages or slender man the eight pages right yeah that's a pretty obscure reference i'm, I'm i mean <laughs> it's not it's like mainstream video game um yeah lexicon. i feel like yeah i've yeah that's true i mean maybe maybe that would that's like the og slenderman stuff but like the the more more the more the recent like and stuff yeah that's been more recent yeah. that's been what i've been exposed to more yeah anyway i think it's <laughs> time to end this episode here yeah. so yeah thank you for listening and we'll see you yeah. next time yeah thanks for thanks for being here um take care and Um, we we hope you had fun. Yeah. Yep. Goodbye. Nope. No. <laughs> Just, yep. no. <laughs> Do you want to? <laughs> that was that was okay. That was good. I thought that you were saying something. No, and I, then said, I just like said I just goodbye. Said, yep. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right. <laughs>